All right, if you've got your Bibles or your devices, whatever you follow along on, uh, you can turn to Romans 8. <clears throat> and as you're getting there, I want to just forewarn you, I'm going to tell a story about Texas. The, the laughter is because there's this weird relationship between Tennessee and Texas. We're like estranged first cousins. Like, I don't know what happened back in the day, but it just happened. Uh, some of you are from there. You lived there. You wish you lived there, whatever. Um, but I went to the office this week and checked my mailbox, and there was a, this nice little coaster with this message, welcome to GFC, Patrick. We love you already. Love you. Um, but the coaster just says, don't mess with Texas. Uh, and so I thought, man, I'm definitely on the right track with this story. So um, we are all Texans in this story, by the way. So just put yourself at ease. Um, all right, May 2016 in Houston, Texas. Um, this is a scene that unfolded. On one side of the city streets, you had a group of protesters uh, that came to, quote, stop the Islamification of America. And on the other side was a group of protesters from the United Muslims of America who were there to save Islamic knowledge. Uh, and so they came on the same day, not knowing the other would be there. Now, thankfully, the FBI and police were there. There was no violence that ensued, um, so we can be grateful for that. Now, what is really interesting, kind of the story behind the story, is that the Senate Intelligence Committee did, did investigating, and they discovered that um, this, this genesis of this conflict came about on Facebook, which is where all good conflict comes these days, is, is Facebook. You need conflict in your life, you should be on Facebook. Um, and, and so that was pretty interesting, but that's not even the real story. The story behind the story behind the story is that upon further investigation, it was revealed that neither of these groups is American at all. In fact, all, through all of like the you know, tracing and all the things, there was a, it was proven that the singular point of origin for both of these groups was from one room in Russia. And so for about $200 in Facebook ads, Russian hackers, Russian spies created this conflict 6,000 miles away in Texas, out of, out of thin air. But it wasn't really out of thin air because what those hackers, what those spies preyed on were fears, desires, passions that were alive and well already in people. And we saw some of this happen in the last election, and I'm sure it'll continue happening because this tends to be the nature of warfare these days. In fact, many of the weapons of modern warfare don't have an engine. They don't fire a single bullet. Rather than machine guns, there's media. Instead of bombs, there are bots. Even atomic weapons have given way to algorithms. And this is the nature of warfare these days. The, the strategy that these Russians use and that the Soviets introduced during the, COVID, uh, the, the Cold War is called disinformation. Disinformation, the strategy of disinformation. So there's some truth, but not all truth. And it's always meant to mislead. It's meant to misdirect you or misguide you, whoever the target may be. We see this in foreign affairs, in politics, in media, in marketing and advertising, but it all hinges on information. Information is the ammunition. And so I tell you about Houston, Houston because it is but a shadow of a war into which we have all been drafted without our even knowing. You had no say in it. You were born into a similar war of disinformation and deceit. The, the term spiritual warfare is not explicitly in scripture, but the idea is certainly there. And so maybe you've heard that term, maybe you haven't, we'll talk about it. But it is the source of all brokenness in our lives. 
And so in any war, we should know who the enemy is. And so if this is a spiritual war, we need to know who the enemy is. So for some context to this, these verses in Romans 8, I want to underlay this with one thing that Paul says to the church at Ephesus. And I'm going to ask you to help me out. All right, first service did not help very much. I'm counting on you, all right? You're the best. Okay, Ephesians 6, you ready? Ephesians 6, Paul says, to, to Jesus followers, put on the full armor of God so that you may take your stand against the devil, right? One person, all right. All right, whatever, all right. That's the enemy, but then you can redeem yourself. Are you ready? Paul says who the enemy is not. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. All right, better, better. Front row, all right. So that's the enemy in spiritual warfare. The enemy is the devil. It is not flesh and blood. And I would say for the better part of 20 years, at least with the church in America, we've been somewhat deceived and gotten off track with who the enemy is. I think we've been co-opted into believing the world's narratives that our struggle is against Democrats or Republicans or Wall Street or China or Russia or the CDC or Common Core Math. Like take your pick. Those are the enemies. But we know this can't be true because none of the solutions that the world offers have ever fixed it. Not a political system, not an economic initiative, not a war, not a new educational paradigm, not a wide open sexual ethic, and electric cars won't fix it either. But I want one. But none of those things have solved the problem because our problem is ultimately spiritual. Our struggle is against the one whom Jesus calls the prince and ruler of this world. So be aware the devil has been given latitude and freedom to tempt, to deceive, to disinform, and he is ruthless, and he wants to kill you. That is his goal. But as bad as that sounds, the great news for the follower of Jesus, and this is where we'll get into Romans 8. We're going to start in verse 9 and work backwards. Romans 8, verse 9, you, however, you follower of Jesus, you, the church, it's plural, you are not in the flesh, we'll talk about flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God lives in you. If anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Now, if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through his spirit who lives in you. So the Holy Spirit, if you're a follower of Jesus, if Christ is in you, you've put your faith, your trust in Jesus, if the Holy Spirit is in you, you've got nothing to worry about in terms of life or death. That even in death, because Jesus was raised from the dead by the Spirit, you too will be raised from the dead in the final resurrection. But that's not even really the point of Romans 8. The point of Romans 8 is resurrected life now, life before, life after death. That's what the Apostle Paul is trying to urge us into and pull us into. So Romans 8 is this living uncondemned, unhindered life with God in the midst of the brokenness. That's what is available to the follower of Jesus. That's the good news. But like Jacob said last week, there are not a lot of us that live that way with that kind of victory, full of life and peace. And I think Romans 8, the rest of these verses tell us why. So look with me at Romans 8, verse 5. Paul writes, For those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit 
have their minds set on the things of the spirit. So Paul says this is, this is binary. There is flesh or spirit. You're not both, you're flesh or spirit. There's no neutral ground. There's no spiritual version of Switzerland. Like everyone's in the fight. No one gets out. And Paul says, you're either flesh or spirit. So which are you? Well, we, we need to understand flesh, first off. Um, some of your translations as you grew up or if you're still reading um, some of the older translations may say the natural self or even your old self. Um, it, the, the flesh is that, that path of least resistance that you can face in life because it is to give yourself over to the nature that you were born with that is woefully tainted by sin and sinful desire. That's the flesh. This is why, for instance, if you've ever had a toddler, you didn't teach them how to bite when they didn't get what they wanted. Like, no mom's like, yeah, actually, if you turn your head to the side, you get more tooth coverage on that arm. Come on, baby. Like, I never sat my kids down and was like, all right, guys, today's lesson, how to sneak candy when you're not supposed to have it. Like, they just knew in their minds, they were like, I want candy, I'm gonna figure out how to do it. What comes natural, right? So that's the flesh. And as adults, we have our own ways of biting for the toy and sneaking candy, don't we? We just do. It's part of being human. And so the flesh is alive and well in all of us, but the goal as we follow Jesus and as we mature in the faith is that the flesh would have less and less of a stronghold in our lives. And Paul says in Romans 8, in these verses, the locus of activity, so the, the main place where this battle is happening, the battleground is the mind. Your mind is the front line of action. And biblically speaking, it's difficult to kind of parse out all the things that the mind is. So there's like 13 words used between the Old and New Testament to talk about the mind. It's all-encompassing, really. Um, it's everything that drives you and, that, and shows you how to navigate the world. I mean, it's your emotions and your thought center. It's um, to mix metaphors. This is like the GPS that guides you through life. It's how you process and think and understand and all of those things. So this is the front line which means that before adultery ever reaches a bedroom or before scandal reaches a boardroom, there have been thousands of battles fought in mines. Before there was a Holocaust or a slave trade or Jim Crow, battles of disinformation and deceit and the flesh were being fought. So this is important. The mind is the front line of the battles. The good news for humans is we do not have to give ourselves over to the flesh. We do not have to be slaves to the flesh. Because we are created in the image of God, we have the freedom to be able to imagine better realities and then make corresponding decisions to, to pursue those realities. Like nowhere in the world today will a group of coyotes gather, huddle up and be like, hey, do you all wanna eat the rabbit? You're like, what are you talking? No, we're coyotes, we eat rabbits. Because that's their flesh. We have similar desires right, that we can pursue, but the Lord gives us the spirit to go, but you don't have to do that. That's not the route you have to take. And so the effort required to resist the flesh is great, but the reward is greater. Here's where we see the reward. Look at verse six. The mindset of the flesh is death, but the mindset of the spirit is life and peace. That's what we want. If you were to examine the deepest desires of your heart, it's life and peace. Every false thing that we've ever chased, we were after life and peace one way or another. And that's what the spirit brings. The mindset of the spirit is life and peace. On the other side, the flesh is death. And make no mistake, the devil's primary strategy for killing your soul 
is to hijack your mind. It is to make you chase after and long for in your emotions, in your decisions, in your thinking, those desires of the flesh. Verses seven through eight go on and say that a mind controlled by the flesh is hostile to God. It refuses to submit to God's law, which means both his parameters, but also his promises. So when we're operating in the flesh, we don't even get the fullness, the joy of God's promises. And the New Testament tells us, here's what the flesh desires. So here's a list. Murder, drunkenness, adultery, stealing, lust, jealousy, pride, anger, rage, slander, lying, greed, Literally the basis of every Netflix show ever. Like, if you're like, what's the flesh? Just Netflix. That's it. And they know it. And they suck us in. It's what they do. But the bottom line, no matter how long you have followed Jesus, if you are a follower of Jesus, you have fleshly desires. We all have them. We're all in the fight. My desire may be different than your desire, but we all have them, which means we all fight. And if you've been in the fight for any amount of time, you know how frustrating that struggle is because it seems incredibly disproportionate. It feels like every yes I say to the spirit, which is a no to the flesh, gains me like a centimeter of ground on the enemy. But every yes I say to the flesh and every no to the spirit, I feel like I lose a mile. And that's the, it just beats you down after a while. But the Lord's saying, no, look, there's, there's hope for this. There is hope. There, the great is our resistance and great is the reward. And in verse six, we see we're not chasing streets of gold in eternity right now. We are after life and peace right here. Paul echoes exactly what Jesus says to his disciples, to his followers. Jesus said to his followers, I've come that you might have life abundant, life to the full. I mean, I, that's, that picture is like there is a cup and you just keep pouring stuff in and it's overflowing and you're like, I don't care. It's hitting the restoration hardware rug, but you don't care because that's life. That's what Jesus is bringing. And he says, and then you have peace. I mean, Jesus says, you will have trouble in this world. True, but my peace I leave with you. Well, that's weird. Of all the things, you left your peace? But could you imagine being any more unhurried or unflappable or unoffendable than Jesus? That's the level of peace. And we wonder, how did he do it? I think Isaiah 26 gives us an idea. Isaiah says of God, you will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast because they trust in you. That kind of peace comes from an unflappable trust in God. That's what faith is. That's where peace rests. Peace rests in being able to acknowledge that my life, the words of my mouth, the, the world, every, every bit of it are in his hands. And that releases me to stop my ceasing and my striving and all of the things that I'm trying to do, my pursuits. St. Augustine has a great line in his autobiography. He says, our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. Our hearts are restless until they rest in God. That is peace. That is what Jesus offers. So let me ask this way. If maturity in the faith were measured by how at peace you are in your mind, how would you fare? If your maturity in the faith were measured by how at peace you are in your mind, how is that going for you? So no matter what's happening in politics or the stock market or bless its heart college football, like no matter what's going on, you're at peace. 
You're just at peace. So the mindset of flesh, the reason I think Paul says it's death is because it doesn't ever have peace. Um, The devil would love for you to have an affair. The devil would love for you to murder someone. Those are kind of like the knockout punches, as it were. But I think the devil is just as happy and content if you have a spirit of bitterness, a constant sense of discontentment, a short fuse with others, a judgmental, condescending spirit, impatient reactions to situations or people. Like, I think the devil's just as happy with that death in your life because you're gonna breathe it into all the environments that you enter into. And so, with our remaining time, here's what I aim to do, okay? Followers of Jesus are called to recognize in ourselves, so this requires some self-awareness, the guiding narratives that are more aligned with the flesh than the spirit. You may think of this as more aligned with the present kingdom than the kingdom of God. That full and final reign of God where all things are as they should be. So there's work to do to understand what are our guiding narratives? What are the things that we've believed, the information that's led us to where we are and then how do we move forward in that? So this is what Jesus did with his disciples. If you think back through, if you know the gospel stories, uh, Jesus went to his disciples and disrupted their entire belief system, including their religion. He challenged their narratives. He disrupted their first century Jewish working class assumptions and conclusions about how the world works, how God works, and how they are to work in the world. That's what he did over and over. He said, you've heard it said, but I say. You've heard it said, but I say. In other words, you have thought and believed and lived this way. I say think and believe and live this way. That is what it means to follow Jesus, is to have our entire lives, including our minds, opened to him in the spirit. So we've gotta be open to the possibility that we might be wrong. How many of you said today to yourself waking up, I might be wrong today? No one, nobody, nobody does that. We don't wanna be wrong, but it is possible that we've developed false narratives leading us away from life and peace. So what we wanna conjure up is a bit of a healthy mistrust of ourselves. Like it's just possible that I shouldn't be trusted with my own thoughts, with my own beliefs, my own narratives of how everything should play out and be open to that. So there are numerous influences when it comes to our minds and beliefs. I think there are two dominant influencers based based on experience and just how we're made in God's image. I really do. And those influencers are the ideas we believe and the images we behold. Ideas we believe, images we behold. And so we're gonna assess these things, these ideas and images, and think of this as like you're scouting the battlefield for strongholds. I mean, that's wise to do. You're scouting the battlefield, which is your mind, for strongholds. Where, do I, where does the enemy have uh, some, a foothold? Where does the enemy have something that I'm trying to break down and demolish? And we do that with Paul's words in mind, where he says, we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Every single thought. This is exhausting. But it's necessary, because when we stop doing this, we start living according to the flesh. So we're taking captive every thought, every one, every thought is under suspicion. So number one, what ideas am I believing? Now, let me preempt this question by saying, you should take your Bible and you should get with trusted believers and followers of Jesus. And this is what should guide the foundation of what you believe and think in life and how you navigate life. This, this is like the core, right? Doesn't answer every single question in life, but I promise there's enough there for you to live a better life than you're living right now. Right, so, and that includes when you're fighting particular temptations. 
that, that your flesh is trying to get at. Uh, so I could walk you through for the next 15 minutes, hey, here's how to use this text, this scripture to fight this temptation and this promise to fight this temptation of the flesh. If you need help doing that, I would gladly meet with you. Any of our staff would. But what I hope to do is cast a bit of a broader net so that you have a more holistic look or at least <clears throat> options of how to fight the flesh and how to grow in life and peace in the spirit. Okay, so... As to what we believe, this is, of course, difficult to parse out because we are the accumulation of our families of origin, our education. If you were raised in church, that's a part of it. Um, I was having a conversation after the first service. Part of the difficulty of growing in Jesus is forgetting what we learned in the name of Jesus, right? I mean, that's just, that can be part of it for some of us in the church. And so it's an accumulation of all that. I would highly recommend working through your past and all of the layers with a therapist. There's, there's something super godly in that, about understanding who you are and where you've come, uh, how you've come to be the way that you are. But thinking in the moment, at the present, where do you get the bulk of your ideas about life and the decisions we make and how to navigate? Because we want to question those assumptions. We want to be open to that, to the spirit moving. So this would include some different things. One, um, friends and social circles, like you cannot help but become a part of who you're hanging out with. It's impossible you will become the people you hang out with the most. Every married person is like, yes. And not always for better. That's, that's how it happens. But that's true for, for singles as well. This would include the various news sources we consume, right? Um, frankly, some of the most agitated people I know are those who consume primarily one news network and only that one news network. And that can be any news network, anyone. Just some of the most agitated, like, what's going on? Like, well, I mean, I don't, I'm like, whoa. I asked if your latte was good. You know, like, it's good. It's going to be fine. It's going to be okay. So how would a mindset on the spirit consume news? It's a fair question. The same question could apply to newspapers, magazines, blogs, uh, your Twitter feed, your RSS subscriptions, your podcasts, all right? Podcasts are huge. I mean, it's like one after another. It gets, gets keep launched all the time. So are you actively listening and processing what's happening, or are you just being entertained by them? Right? There's, there's some things to consider there. Uh, for those who enjoy reading theology or spiritually themed books, do you read widely, or are you seeking only to have your ideologies affirmed? That's a really important question, I would say, for, especially for more mature followers of Jesus. Are you willing to be challenged? So all of these inputs, so to speak, should be examined because they create these neural pathways that fire off all the time, and the spirit is working in our minds. We want to give the spirit more good to work with. So a couple of really pointed questions to kind of help break some of this down, because I know this feels abstract um, and somewhat difficult, but here are a couple questions to help with the ideas. One, what am I quick to defend? What are you quick to defend? What causes a knee-jerk reaction in you? Like if this topic comes up or if this starts getting discussed, I mean, you just, bam, like you're on, thousand percent. In general, defensiveness is a telltale sign that something is off in us. Something's off in our hearts. Something's off in our minds. Um, I tend to be pretty defensive, but it's only primarily with my wife. And what I've had to do is wrestle through, like, why am I so bent out of shape on, like, if, if I loaded the dishwasher well, or if I mowed the yard well, or, or if I like anticipate like, oh, I think she's saying I didn't do this, and then I go on the offensive, or at worst, I'm passive aggressive. Well, what is that in me? Which is a great question, by the way. What is that? 
Well, that's undealt with insecurities. <laughs> that's what that is. And it's unfair to her because I'm expecting things that she was never created to offer. So defensiveness should signal something in us. Something's off. Jesus repeatedly tried to invite the Pharisees and scribes, the religious leaders of his day, into this life and peace that we're talking about. But they missed it. Again and again, they refused to be open to what Jesus was saying because they were so bent on defending what they already believed. Dallas Willard helps us understand why this is. He says, combined with a sense of righteousness, strong feelings become impervious to fact and reason. Combined with a sense of righteousness, in other words, I'm right to believe this, you're wrong to believe that. Strong feelings, of which we can have many, become impervious to fact or reason. We can be totally shut off to hearing truth or even reason that might suggest we're wrong. And that's what happened to the Pharisees over and over and over again. This, by the way, is why families have the unspoken rule that there will be no talk of politics or religion at the dinner table. It's because of this, because there are a lot of strong feelings attached and righteousness attached to those, those topics. And so we don't tend to talk about those things. So the flesh is opposed to any challenge. The flesh doesn't wanna be challenged. It doesn't wanna have good conversations and helpful dialogue because the flesh doesn't want to grow anything good. So what are you quick to defend? Your work-life balance or a lack thereof? Financial practices, travel ball schedules, smartphone usage, a theological position? What, what brings that knee-jerk reaction in you? All right, same coin, different side. Who am I quick to attack? Not just defend, who am I quick to attack? Um, the spirit will never, never lead us into othering people, where we make people less than in our hearts or minds which then builds superiority in ourselves. The spirit will never lead us down that path. If that's happening at all, that's a problem. Something's off. And I think most of us would say, oh, I, don't, I don't do that. I don't other people. I don't think I'm superior to people. But if you're honest, consider this. Have you ever heard a news report or seen a follow-up maybe to a story and it has to do with a person or a group of people? And have you ever had the thought, well, serves them right. Have you ever thought, well, not surprised? I mean, you ever thought that? I have those thoughts. And I immediately have to go, whoo, flesh. <laughs> not the spirit. Not the spirit at work in my mind. So are you quick to defend? Are you quick to attack? It means you're embodying information or ideas in a way that runs contrary to life and peace. So we could talk ad nauseum about information or ideas, but the second thing is what images am I beholding? What images am I beholding? Images contain messages which are stronger most of the time than just pure information or ideas. It's why, as adults, we remember things that we saw or heard when we were children. But we don't, it's, I mean, this is the reason Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader still like, really works. We remember what happened and what we saw in fifth grade, but we don't remember what we learned. So there's something to this. There's something really big to images. Um, I know we have some GFCers who love the Enneagram, others who don't know what it is. Some may think it's witchcraft. I happen to love it. Um, and I am an Enneagram six, which means I'm highly impressionable. Uh, so especially with images, when it comes to movies, music, um, you know, TV, art, all of that, highly impressionable. Um, so for instance, I've seen every James Bond movie for the last 30 years in the theater. And for the next week, after each of those movies, 
Every guy I pass, I am like, how would I take him down or kill him? <laughs> and every man in this room is like, I know what you're saying. Like, you have your own poison, but it, mine was James Bond. There's something there. Like, I don't know what that is, but it grabs my imagination and it runs wild. So be honest, how is what you're beholding shaping your mind? Um, a really great practice. Everybody probably has a phone on them of some shape. Um, think about the apps that you use on a daily basis, on a regular basis, the apps on your phone or on your iPad, whatever. Um, if you have sustained feelings of discontentment or negative self-image and you're spending ample time on Instagram, which the average is 11 hours a month, that's average, it's probably time for like a break the Ross and Rachel break. And truly, think about this question. Be honest. When was the last time you got done scrolling and you just thought, oh, I am so full of life and peace right now because of my time on the gram. Love it. Just fill me up. Better for it. When was the last time that happened? And maybe, you're, maybe Instagram's not your thing. Maybe you're older and it's like Facebook, all right? You just get on there. It's not an attack on your age. But this happens across the board. Teenagers, college students, for Snapchat and DMs. How at peace are you if your streak ends? What if you're not in the group message, the group text? What if someone doesn't like the post? You don't get enough likes or whatever it may be. What about your fitness app? Is that bringing you life or death? Like it's weird to think that your fitness app could bring you death, but what if you don't make your steps? What if your macros are off? Like, what if you don't get your mileage? And that's a thing. Just like devastated, I'm gonna eat donuts. So whatever app you use, are you more at peace? Are you more filled with life because of it? Or is there one or two apps that serve as like a taskmaster over you? And truly, you are their slave. And that includes that little app that has a big red number that is your email. Is, is that one? Um, for those who indulge in Netflix period pieces, is your latest binge-worthy series leading you into life and peace in the spirit? I'm talking as a recovering period peace person, okay? But is it really? Or do your viewing habits make you like wish that your, your significant other were, you know, who is less chiseled, but were more chiseled and whispering like professionally scripted lines into your ear while cuddling you by the fire? Like that's a thing, don't tell me it's not. Or do you wish your partner were more sultry? Some of you just want to be a Viking, and I can't make sense of that. Like, there's, there's a lot of Viking shows, y'all. I don't know. I don't know what's happening. But if you get to the heart of it, all right, here is an exercise. If you want to get to the heart of it, keep a notebook, keep a list on your phone, whatever, um, of what you consume this week, the images you consume. And just do a little grade, like more life, more peace, plus, or not and see what, see what comes out. Now, when it comes to rewiring our minds and our affections for the spirit, there are practices we can uh, employ, and I just wanted to share a few that helped me, uh, and I think they're universal. Um, one, Stephen actually said it in, in, his, in the worship time, get out in nature. Uh, get out in nature. This is so much more life-giving and at peace than even this room. Or if you have to work with fluorescent lights, like the devil lives there, you know, so like get out, go be in nature, go on a hike, do, take up bird watching, get rained on, like just go out and be outside. Um, listen to beautiful music. 
The kind of music, this is for me, maybe, just me. The kind of music that I'm drawn to in a, in a moment tells me a lot about my mind and my heart space. It does. And so even like working on the message, like listening to Yo-Yo Ma and Tchaikovsky, like that was way more life-giving and, and spirit-filling than say Cardi B or Morgan Wallen, right? Some of y'all like, Cardi who? But seriously though, like it, what, the soundtrack that you give the spirit to work with, what is that like in your life? Feast on good art. Like Monet's, the bridge at Argentile, like when I'm there, I'm looking at this thing. I had this in my room in college. Uh, shocker, I know. But when I saw it at the Musée d'Orsay in Paris, it was just like, oh my goodness, feeding my soul, nourishing me. The same is not true after watching Thor Odinson ram an ax through someone's head for two hours. Like they're just different. And so what, what is it for you that like, like there's something, I don't know, when you look at that, it stirs something up in me that is beautiful, that is good, that is peaceful. It's why even Johnson City and the city of Johnson City are starting to paint underpasses and fire stations because there's something to beautiful images. There's something there. And so for, in all of this, as we have this healthy suspicion of ourselves, we ask this question, are, are the images I'm beholding, are the ideas I'm believing really breathing life and peace into my self, into my mind, into my heart, or are they welcoming in death? Now, I wanna close with why I'm really encouraged, even though this is a really hard practice. Because for the last week, week and a half, I've been saturated in the scripture, and, and this has been on my mind constantly. And so it's, it's changed kind of what I'm willing to take in to my mind, how quickly I'll turn something off or just not waste time with it. It's changed what I listen to, what I think about. And of course, that ends up bleeding out into all these other things. So implications for what comes out of me and my attitudes, my positivity, kindness, compassion, empathy, those grow. I cry more at worship songs, like in prayer, like all of those things happen. And so it has all of these influences, including toward the the clerk at Food City who probably got her like cashier station just a little too early. You, you laugh, I'm serious here. We were able to work through that together. Like I'm there bagging and I'm like, I think you have to call a code in on that one. You know, <laughs> like just talking through it. She's like, oh yeah, thank you, thank you, thank you. And I'm like, I wouldn't have done that two weeks ago. No way. I would have been the one yelling for a minute, like code seven, like, come on, give me some help. But there's something in this, as you do this, as you saturate your mind with the spirit, the flesh loses ground. And it's gonna show up in every area of your life. And so as you do this, be ready. As soon as you start pushing back against the flesh, you know it's gonna fight back. There's gonna be a thousand countermeasures against you for every one that you give to the spirit. That's true. So we're ready for it. We're prepared for it. We expect it. But we go back to Romans 8, verse 1, every single time we fail, we fall, and we declare the truth, the gospel's truth. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I'm not condemned for this. I'm right back up with the one who is victorious, reigning over life and death. I am with Jesus. And that is where we are at rest with God. Let's pray. Our good and gracious Heavenly Father, as we think about what it means to follow you, we think about what it means to submit our minds to you, Holy Spirit. 
the same spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. We give you thanks that you enable us, that you equip us to imagine different realities and to make decisions in line with that. I pray, Lord, for each person here, man, woman, child, young, old, doesn't matter. I pray that because of your word, that this week, that even this afternoon, there would be more victory in the spirit and less of our minds given over to the flesh. That we would walk in more life and peace because of the work you're continuing to do in us by the power of the spirit. Let us walk away knowing we are loved, that we couldn't be loved anymore or any less than we are at this moment. Spirit, bring renewal, bring freedom, bring healing, bring life. We ask in Jesus' name.